Well, it's a privilege to be with you, and as always, it's a privilege to open God's Word with you tonight. So, would you pray with me once more? Father, I'm reminded of your Word that says we're all like grass, and the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. And so we've come here to hear that eternal standing word, and we want to take our stand on it tonight. So we ask that you'd help us to hear well. You'd ask that you'd help me to to speak well, and that you would be on display. That we would see more of you through your word, and our hearts would delight in you. That we wouldn't have to wait till we leave here to apply these things, that we'd apply them right now by rejoicing in the God that we see in this text. So give us that grace this evening, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I love about traveling is getting to go and see some of the old and what some people might call stuffy places around the world. Uh, A lot of people go and they want to see exciting things, new things, but I like going to the old places. And uh, one of the oldest places I've gotten to go to is a, is a city called Hierapolis, which is located in central Turkey. Uh, it dates back to the time of the New Testament, and people from all around there would go there just for the hot springs. And people still go there because they're about the hot springs. Well, I didn't actually go there and see the hot springs. I went to see the ruins of the town And the thing I remember most about being in Hierapolis was the main street because it was perfectly preserved. Okay, this this city is over 2,000 years old and the street, you could drive a car down it today, it was made out of finely cut white stone. It even had a gutter system so that the flash flooding that would often occur in that area didn't swamp the town. I mean, 2,000 years ago, they developed a rainwater gutter system in the main street of the town, and it's perfectly preserved and still functions today. It's amazing. But what we're looking at tonight is we're looking at an ancient pathway that was laid down by our Lord Jesus. Okay? And over the past few weeks, we've taken and looked at some individual of the paving stones, and we're going to look at one more stone tonight. But before we do that, I wanted us to get a little bit more of a trajectory of looking at the, at the road. Okay? Because this is uh, something that's been functioning well for 2,000 years, and it still functions today, but we we don't want to miss the overall perspective of this road. It's a road of blessedness, right? I know we've talked about that for the few weeks now, that blessedness essentially means happy or having our soul satisfied. It's not the, the thrills of our society at getting the latest fashion or going to see the latest movie. These are These are deep... Satisfactions. These are things that are, going to, that are going to satisfy our souls through the toughest of times. That's what this kind of happiness is. But I wanted to, to add just one insight to this term blessedness, okay? Because maybe this is just a more personal observation that I've had over the past few weeks. My family had been memorizing Psalm 1. And if you know how that psalm starts, it starts out and says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. 
And it goes on from there with some more beautiful thoughts, some wise thoughts. But it, it starts with that word blessed. And I thought, huh, I just, I just wonder if, if that's related here. And so we read the Bible in English, obviously. And what a gift that is. You know, there's still some peoples in the world that don't have the Bible in their language. So what a gift that we have the Bible in English. And back at the time of Jesus, there were some Jews that lived down in Egypt, okay? And they, they were having a hard time reading the Hebrew Old Testament. And so some scholars down there in Egypt translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And we call that the Septuagint. And that actually became the main Bible of the early church because most of the early Christians only spoke Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. So if they wanted to read the Old Testament, if they wanted to read the story of Exodus, they were reading it out of this translation called the Septuagint. So that was a gift to them. So I got my copy of that out and I looked it up. And sure enough, the same word in Greek that starts off Psalm 1 is the same word that Jesus used here in the Beatitudes. Blessed, makarios, okay? And and that got me thinking, because what is Psalm 1 doing? Psalm 1 is this entryway to the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, we get a picture of what it's like to experience faithful living in the fear of God. The book of Psalms gives us portraits. It gives us the speech of people that love God and follow him. And so it starts out with a, a saying of blessedness. And I thought... Isn't that amazing that when Jesus starts this very famous sermon, he starts out with sayings of blessedness. And we notice throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, what it is, is it's a portrait of how we live faithfully in the service of our God and King. Faithful Christian living is spelled out. It's not how we become Christians. The Psalms isn't how you become a faithful follower of God. It's a description of what that life looks like. And I was... I was pleased by that similarity and I wanted to share that with you. But at the same time, the word blessed, now there's two words in Hebrew for blessed, but in this particular instance, it usually begins a wisdom saying. And now wisdom essentially is living in a right fear of God. So again, we get another confirmation that what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount is a portrait of faithful Christian living in the fear of God. So as I mentioned, this is, this is a, a beautiful pathway of blessedness. And we're going to take one more step tonight. So if you have your Bibles, we're looking at Matthew 5, verse 9. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the peacemaking stone on the pathway. We've looked at the stones of Poverty of spirit, of mourning over sin, of power under control, meekness, of hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful living, purity in the secret places of our life, and now peacemaking. And those who live in the kingdom of God are marked by peace and they make peace. Those who live in the kingdom of God are marked by peace and they make peace. And so here's what we're going to look at tonight. Peacemakers are blessed. So this is a description, this should be a description of us. Peacemakers are blessed because they experience, they evidence, and they expect the call of the sons of God. They experience, they evidence, and they expect the call of the sons of God. So experiencing the call of sons, or another way you could say it is fathers identify their sons. 
fathers identify their sons. Let's look a little more closely at one of the key words in our verse. They shall be called. In Greek, it's just one, one word, one verb, and it's very common throughout the New Testament. It could mean to, to call out, to, to call someone over, but in this, I think we all pretty well get the sense that it, it's about naming or labeling something. Right? So in this situation, the sons of God, the, the peacemakers are going to be labeled sons of God. And immediately a question came to my mind again. Now, I thought that we already were sons of God. And if that question came to your mind, you're absolutely right. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God by faith. Those who are in Christ are sons of God. And the way that we are in Christ is not by being peacemakers, it's by faith. Okay? So again, another confirmation that what we've got here in the Sermon on the Mount is a description of faithful living. Not how to become a son of God, but what a son of God should look like. First, we need to experience the peacemaking work of God before we can become true peacemakers. Okay? We need to experience God's peacemaking work before we become peacemakers. Would you turn to Colossians 1? It's a little bit longer text, so I just wanted to, uh, I want you to open there and look at this with me. Colossians 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. In verse 15. It says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Great and almighty God, who made all things, right now is holding all things together. Your very body, sitting in this pew, is being held together by Jesus Christ. This God made peace with our rebellious lives through the blood of His cross. The wonderful and sweet, happy gift of peace comes through a horrible, bloody, wrath-absorbing sacrifice on a cross. The only way that we can have peace with God is through the horrible agony of death. A peacemaker in this life, a true peacemaker, someone who has experienced that peace and now is in Jesus Christ. Those who have experienced this peacemaking work receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's a verse you're probably familiar with, Romans 8:14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
So we see that God the peacemaker first makes us his sons. God the peacemaker makes us his sons, gives us his Holy Spirit, and then he calls us to a life of being peacemakers. I think we can learn something from the ancient concept of sonship. Uh, Family relationships have changed a lot in, in modern-day America from what they used to be in the ancient world. So listen to the words of a New Testament scholar here as he describes what sonship was like back at the time of Jesus. In the ancient world, your father determined your identity, your training, your vocation. He generated you not only biologically, but, shall we say, functionally, You were derived from him, not only biologically, but functionally. He established your vocation, your place in the culture, your identity, your place in the family. This is the dynamic of a culture that is pre-industrial and fundamentally characterized by agriculture, handcrafts, small-time trade. So to sum it up, fathers in the ancient world not only begot their sons physically, but they trained them up and identified them in the society. Think about this. Probably the clearest example you would know would be Jesus, who lived at that time. And what is he referred to sometimes? The son of the carpenter. Right? Now, the Bible gives us a a picture of Jesus' life during his ministry. We don't get a whole lot of details about the first 30 years of his life or so. But it's likely that under his father's tutelage, he learned this trade of carpentry and perhaps used that from time to time earlier in his life. Okay? His father and his father's trade identified him as a carpenter. It became part of who he was. And I think that's true for us, too. God, our Father, not only begets us as sons when we're born again by the Holy Spirit, but he initiates us into the new life of following Jesus. He is the one that determines our identity. He is the one who establishes our vocation. And he's the one that teaches us how to do it. The great peacemaker has determined that his sons should be peacemakers. So we see that peacemakers are blessed first. Our first blessing as peacemakers is because we have experienced the call of the sons of God. But sons of God or peacemakers are going to also evidence that call. Peacemakers are also going to evidence that call. In other words, fathers don't just identify their sons. Sons will imitate their fathers. Fathers identify their sons, but sons will also imitate their fathers. We saw that identity is passed along to sons through their fathers, and we also see, not just in the ancient world, but even today, don't we? We see it that sons imitate their fathers. We could even say that a son of God is someone who imitates God. It's more than that, but an important part of what being a son of God is, is that we imitate our father. Now, All of you have probably been around young boys. And you can be around them and you can learn things about their father. For many of you who are men in this room who have children, you've probably also said things at times and say, wow, I I remember my father saying that. You you didn't consciously attempt to do that. It just comes out of your mouth in the spur of a moment and and you catch yourself later thinking, wow, that sounds a lot like my father uh, in good and bad ways sometimes. But this imitative aspect is, is, is just built into the father-son relationship, isn't it? For example, my dad has worked for a number of years in the area of finance, in business administration, and I haven't done any of that vocationally, okay? So just like Jesus' dad was a carpenter, he became a carpenter. My dad worked in finance, but I didn't, 
Okay, that's kind of a disconnect in modern America. But I've noticed over the years, in all the jobs I've had, a lot of administrative things come out. I, that just comes very naturally to me. And I think I've learned a lot of things from my father just not even knowing it, and that's come out. Uh, for example, uh, my father taught me how to play lots of sports over the years, and the two that I've mainly retained are tennis and soccer, two of his favorites that he always uh, liked to play when he was younger. And we could go on. I mean, the way I learned to dress, the way I learned to eat, some of my music preferences, and even the way I talk, all of these have been subtly influenced by my father because he taught me, but also because a son just has a natural propensity to imitate his father. And so when our Heavenly Father uh, speaks to us specifically in regard to peace, we want to pay attention to that. The life of the son of a peacemaker should be marked by peacemaking. If you're still in Matthew 5, or if you want to turn back there, I think we get some evidence of this. Um, So one of the best ways to understand the Sermon on the Mount is to look at other parts of the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but up on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. That's not what it says. It says, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, how are they going to know who our Father is? Well, the way that we live and the way that we act should imitate and point to and reflect on our fathers. They see us living out the identity that he's given us and imitating him. So, let's look at that. What does it look like to be a peacemaker? We've seen God as the great peacemaker. What does it mean for us to be peacemakers? I'd like to suggest two answers, and we only have time to look at one right now. And the other one is too big. And so I'm commending it to you for your own personal study, okay? First of all, I'd commend to you the practice of reading the Bible. In all settings, in lots of ways, I'd encourage you to do it every day. Do it in groups. Do it alone. Read the Bible. Get the Bible in you so that you know it, so that you've memorized it, so that it comes to your mind. But when you're reading the Bible, I want to add this to, to, to your uh, routine, so to speak. Ask this question. What does this text tell me about God? What does this text tell me about God? It's not a very difficult question, but it's amazing how many times we read the Bible and we get caught up in all these interesting things and we've never thought about what that text tells us about the main character of the Bible. I catch myself doing it all the time, so much so that I said, the month of June, what I'm going to do is every time I read the Bible uh, in the morning, I'm going to pull out my journal, and I'm first going to write that question out. What does it tell me about God? And I'm going to look at this text until I see something about God. Okay? Because I need to train myself to do this more and more. So I'm commending it to you. Do that. Look at God. Because if we're going to be imitators of Him, we've got to know what He looks like. We've got to see Him in all of His texts. I mean, for example, this week it was difficult because I'm reading the story of Samson. I'm reading through the book of Judges. Sometimes God doesn't even hardly get mentioned in the chapter. So, sometimes it does take a little bit of work. You do have to do a little bit of thinking. What does this text tell me about God? But I, 
I guarantee that it's going to prove fruitful for you. Because as we look at God, see more what he's like, we can then imitate him more by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's a great activity to do. Watch our God make peace all across the Bible, and we'll know more of what it means to be a peacemaker. But maybe a little bit more practically, let's look at a more narrow definition of peacemaking. Can we do that together? Because we want to imitate our peacemaker, God. Let's look at some things that he says here. Um, right now, we've, we've kind of defined, I've left peacemaking as this big, grandiose thing, the, the shalom of God upon the earth where, where all things are summed up in Christ and he's reconciling all things to himself, uniting things in Jesus. He's making all things new. And that's a beautiful sense of it. But more specifically, we can look at, and this is really practical, what does it look like to make peace in our relationships? What does it look like to make peace in our human relationships with one another? And again, I think we can just look ahead at the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to see Jesus unpacking that for us. Okay, so look with me. If if you're still open to Matthew 5, uh, you'll see that a lot of Bibles will break it up by the headings. So they'll, they'll, they'll break different paragraphs off and give it different uh, titles about kind of summarizing what it is. And so think about this in verse 21. What does it look like to make peace when you're battling anger? You're angry at someone. How do you make peace? How do you fight against that anger so that you can have a peaceful relationship? Okay, well, look at verse 23 with me. It says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So when, when anger is something that's breaking relationships, that's causing there to not be peace in our relationships, Jesus is saying you need to seek out reconciliation even before you come and offer your gift Even before you come into the congregation and offer your gift, you need to go and be reconciled with your brother. Jesus is saying, fight against anger. Make peace. Or here's another way you might want to think about it. This, this, I was, I was trying to think through this. How is Jesus saying make peace here? The next section is about lust. Jesus says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Before the days when pornography is proliferated in our society and spread on the internet and all this sort of thing, I mean, when Jesus said this, lust was going to be between two people. It was going to be, it was going to be physical, it was going to be relationship, relationshiply based. And, uh, Jesus is saying, you need to fight against that. If that's rising up and that's causing there to be not peace in your relationship with somebody, you need to tear out your eye and throw it away. You can't have peace with women around you if this kind of thing is going on in your heart. So he's saying, if you want to make peace, you need to do battle with lust. Peacemakers will do battle with their sin because that's what's causing the division between them and other people. Or look at the next section, okay? Divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him get a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Okay? I can't unpack all of what he's saying here, but simply, there's a problem in this marriage that's, that, that has based in sin that's going to cause there to be a break, a lack of peace, a lack of harmonious relationship. And Jesus is saying, you need to fight against that. You need to fight against your sin in order to make peace in your relationships. And we could go on throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about uh, battling against lies. Or he talks about battling the desire to retaliate, turn the other cheek. He's teaching us how to make peace. Battling hatred, battling greed, anxiety, pride. Pride which severs our relationship with God because we exalt ourselves in the place of God. Mike was talking about that earlier with the idolatry. We're exalting ourselves so often. And that breaks our peace with God. And we have to do battle with that in order to have peace with God. Or battling a judgmental spirit. Battling unbelief. So we can read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and see all these examples that come up with breaks in relationships where we want peace to happen. And to make peace, we need to do battle. So the way we evidence our sonship is in heeding these commands, fighting against sin, so that we can live rightly ordered relationships. And the more we do that, the more we imitate our Father who is in heaven. So we see that peacemakers are blessed because first we've experienced the call of sons and we're starting, by the help of the Holy Spirit, to evidence that call. We're starting to look like our Father. But lastly, and perhaps the greatest blessing, we don't want to skip over this too quickly, perhaps one of the greatest blessings is that we expect the final call of the sons of God. Or in other words, sons inherit from their fathers. Fathers identify their sons, sons imitate their fathers, and sons will inherit from their fathers. Now, I've heard it said before that Christianity is the only religion where women have to learn to be sons and men have to learn to be brides. Women have to learn what it is to be sons and men have to learn what it is to be brides. Okay? In other words, those are biblical metaphors that are outside of our experience and we have to, we have to get a hold on that. The church is described as the bride of Christ and the church is made up of men and women. Well, I've never been a bride. So I have to use my sanctified imagination to figure out What's it like to be a bride? How does a bride relate to her husband? And I need to, as part of the church, be that. And for ladies, we have to look at the picture of what is a son. You've never been a son. You never will be a son. But how, how do sons relate to their fathers and, as a Christian, learn what that is? Okay, so we both have work to do. In Revelation chapter 21, it uses both of those metaphors, actually. It talks about the bride and it talks about sons. We're just going to look at sons, though, today, because of uh, that's where our focus is, but uh, something to look at uh, in your own study of the Bible. Revelation 21, verses 5 to 7. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Isn't that good? That will be good. When Jesus makes all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Sounds a lot like an Old Testament passage, 2 Samuel 7.14, that says, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And uh, some commentators think that that's what this reference in Revelation is pointing to. I will be his God, and he will be my son. See, because in the Old Testament, Israel, in the time of Exodus, which we're studying in the mornings, is called the Son of God. And then later on, the Davidic king and the line of Davidic kings are called the sons of God. They're supposed to be the ones who most imitate God. And you should be able to look at the king and say, that's someone who's teaching me the way of God. I can look at his life and see what God is like more and more. And now... With the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, we see the perfect image of God. And by virtue of the fact that we are in Him, we are now called sons of God. So, the one who conquers the battles of faithful devotion to Jesus will inherit the waters of life. Sons inherit from their fathers. We will inherit the eternal life as we live out our sonship. Uh, this is also another, we were already in Romans 8, but look at it again with me. Romans 8, 18 to 23. Okay? You might know this passage a little bit better. Romans 8. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then it goes on. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we, okay, that's us, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We've got to learn what it is to be a son in relation to the Father. There's so much in this text, but we're just going to, we just, we'll just pull that little element out and look at the fact that we've been adopted as sons. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been. We've been adopted as sons, but we're not home yet, are we? We've been called and made sons, but we haven't inherited the fullness of what that means yet. That's still coming. But it will come. Yes, it will come. The day will come when He will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. And if we have lived out sonship faithfully, we will be those who conquer and inherit the waters of eternal Life. In those days, the ones who have experienced the peacemaking of God, have then begun to evidence the peacemaking work of God, will gladly expect to be called sons of God and inherit on that day. So, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The great peacemaking God made peace with you and me through the blood of of his cross. And we have become some sons of the kingdom. And sons of the kingdom are going to imitate their father. They're going to evidence sonship by observing the father, by imitating him. 
when we make peace in our relationships, when we, we bring other people into a peaceful relationship with God, we're being peacemakers. And when we ourselves experience and live out that peace through Christ, then others are going to see our good works. They're going to give glory to our Father in heaven. And finally, sons of the kingdom will one day inherit the fullness of life. We will taste the world-reshaping shalom of God when everything is made new and whole and perfect again. And on that day, on that day, He will call us sons and we will be blessed. We will be blessed. So would you pray with me? Our Father, it is such a joy to call you that. Because you and you alone have made us sons. You and you alone have made us sons. We thank you for that. We ask, oh God, by your Spirit, help us to live that out. Help us to imitate you and to, and to give evidence that we are sons. And more than anything, would you fill us with a longing, with an expectation for that day when we will hear you say, Come in, my son. And we will inherit eternal life. So give us joy in these things even as we go from here. We pray in Jesus' name.